So if you take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 1, we introduced the Gospel of Luke last week, looking at the first four verses, and um, we have almost 100 verses to look at today. So, but... Uh, I want to remind you, last year, around this time, around the Christmas time, we, we actually looked at five different messages from Luke 1.5 to 2.20. And so if you'd like to, if you weren't here for that and you want to get more in depth on these verses, then you could go on our YouTube channel and look up those messages and see a, a lot more of a, a close look uh, at the text there. What I want to do this morning, though, is give us an overview of this section. Uh, I didn't want to just re-preach uh, those five messages again to you, uh, even though, I mean, what do you remember from a year ago? I mean, do you remember what you ate yesterday? I mean, <laughs> but uh, we, we have those, and I would encourage you if, you, if you'd like to go back to those. I really enjoyed preaching those, uh, those passages in depth, but I wanted to give us an overview of that, uh, and... Really, those are kind of like puzzle pieces you can fit into this, this series uh, as well. I called that series uh, a year ago, We've Been Expecting You. And so I called this message, We've Been Expecting You, because uh, that is what all of this is about. It is about the expectation of the Messiah. The we is the remnant of believers. And the you is the promised Messiah, the Son of Man. Remember that Luke's gospel emphasizes Jesus as the Son of Man, right? So we looked a little bit about the different gospels. Matthew uh, presents Jesus as the long-expected Messiah and King. Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Uh, John presents Jesus as the Son of God. And Luke as the Son of Man. And so that is his focus. God's remnant has been expecting a new Adam since Genesis 3.15. You know, you see the, the beginning of God's plan and his purpose given in Genesis 3.15 of the promise of the seed of the woman. And this is one who the rest of the scriptures then follow to say, who is the one? Who is the one? Who is coming? A lot of movies have that theme, the one, you know, this particular individual. Uh, and that is the story of the scriptures. And it's who is this individual? And then finally, when we get to the New Testament, we learn that the one is the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we also learned that Luke begins his introduction by speaking about the things that had been accomplished among them. Or we said that word meant fulfilled. So people were writing about the events of the life of Jesus. There was an excitement, a buzz, because what Jesus did was fulfillment. He was bringing to pass uh, the expectations of the Old Testament. So verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. And that's one of Luke's main goals, is to describe the things that Jesus did and accomplished and fulfilled. And that is no less the case in this birth narrative of Chapters 1 to 3, and we're going to be looking at uh, the rest of chapter 1 and the first 20 verses of chapter 2 this morning and seeing the fulfillment of the Son of Man. We want to see five fulfillments of the Son of Man's birth. Five fulfillments of the Son of Man's birth. 
The first is the cousin of the Son of Man. The cousin of the Son of Man. In verses 5 to 25. Let's look at those verses. Verse 5 begins, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. <clears throat> they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, to the, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at, at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and, remaining, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now Luke, unlike any of the other gospel writers, gives us the origin story of John. Other gospel writers have John already in the wilderness, preaching, wearing, you know, his interesting clothing and has interesting diet of locusts and wild honey. And uh, we're like, man, if ever I wanted to know the origin story of someone, it's John the Baptist. And here we get that in Luke's gospel. It is the prequel to the story of Jesus. And so here is the forerunner, and he's the cousin of the Son of Man, the cousin of Jesus. And so before you can get to Jesus, you have to start with John. And so uh, Luke's told us he was going to take us back to the beginning. And that's what he does in the story of John. We're introduced to a couple in Israel who we might describe in three ways. They are saved, they are being sanctified, and they have suffered. And that is Elizabeth and Zechariah. They're saved. It says they were both righteous before God. They are being sanctified, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord, and they have suffered. 
They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Elizabeth, his wife, is barren. And this introduces us to a key theme in the scriptures, a barrenness motif, a barrenness theme where women who are barren often marks a time in God's plan that something big is going to happen, right? So you have Abraham and Sarai. Uh, Sarah is, is barren and something big happens. Isaac and Rebekah, Manoah and his wife, Elkanah and Hannah. Climactic moments in redemptive history happen when there is a woman who is barren. And no less here, as we are introduced to this barren woman, something is going to happen. Those who are reading the scriptures would know to have their attention focused because something is going to happen. Something climactic. Zechariah, or Zacharias, as some translations have it, means the Lord has remembered. This is important because God has made promises, and yet, for the last 400 years, God hasn't said anything. No new revelation, nothing. After Malachi, silence, radio silence. And one of the later prophets to write, Malachi is one of those, another is Zechariah, who means God remembers. And the whole point of Zechariah is God remembers all of his promises. He's gonna bring all of them to pass. Even if you've forgotten some of them, God remembers and he's gonna bring them to pass. And so Zechariah already has a name to remind us that God remembers his promises. God providentially then arranges for Zechariah to be picked to burn incense in the temple. Not in the Holy of Holies, that was only for the high priest to do one time a year in the Day of Atonement, but in the holy place, just outside of that. It was still outside of the view of the people though. So he would <clears throat> consecrate himself and he would go in and he wouldn't be able to be seen and he would burn this incense and this would happen in the morning sacrifice and at the evening sacrifice. This was something that was, uh, there were so many priests that some didn't even get to do this ever in their ministry. And so Zechariah up to this point in his life has not yet been able to do this, but he's an old man. And usually we believe that once they did it, they were like off the list because there were so many others who didn't get a chance to do this uh, great privilege. But God, through his providence and the casting of the lot, has it be Zechariah so that he is the one to be moved into place to accomplish God's plan. So Zechariah goes into this place and he's now outside of the view of the people. And while alone in this solemn moment, an angel appears to him. Now keep in mind the significance of this moment. We've already said God has not spoken for 400 years. He's been radio silent, but now it's like you have that moment in the movies where you start to hear the crackle of the, of the radio. It's like, and you're like, someone's on the other side and someone's there. And that's what you have here in this moment. God speaks again through his messenger. And what does he say? Your prayers have been answered. Your prayers have been answered. What prayer is he referring to? It's certainly possible that Elizabeth and Zechariah had been praying for a baby, right? That seems very possible. However, and that may be included here, but they probably gave up praying some time ago because she, they're old, she's been barren. Uh, it, it seems unlikely uh, that they would still be praying for that. So it's also possible that maybe they're praying for the Messiah, we learn later about what Zechariah is going to say in our passage. Zechariah has very clear expectations about the Messiah's coming and what he's going to do. 
He's very informed about Messiah's coming. So it's very likely that he and his wife are praying that the Messiah would come. And certainly they would be dialed into Old Testament prophecy uh, knowing that this is coming soon even based on the timeline God had given. And so maybe they're praying for the baby. Maybe they're praying for the Messiah. It actually could be both because their baby is going to end up being the answer to the Messiah's coming because their baby is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. The angel brings good news. Elizabeth is going to have a baby. His name will be John, which means Yahweh has been gracious. And the answer to this prayer is going to be joy for one family in particular, but also joy for all the peoples through this child, both individuals and the people of God. This message from the angel is an answer to their prayers and will prepare the way for the Messiah. And there's five things about this child to rejoice in. He will be great in the sight of God, verse 15. He will be a Nazarite. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He will preach repentance and he will be a forerunner for the Messiah. I said five, there's six things. He will be, he have Elijah, Elijah-like ministry as well. And so what he's doing is, this angel is alluding back to this promise in Malachi 3 and 4 and Isaiah 40 about one who would come on the scene just prior to the Messiah. One who would be a forerunner, who would announce his coming. And so that is who John is going to be. He will fulfill that identity. Unfortunately, Zechariah questions this, resulting in his being silent until the child is named. He walks out of the temple and he would, he would come back into the view of the people after fulfilling his function and the thing he was supposed to do was give a benediction. Maybe the ironic benediction in number six, but he can't say anything. And what does that tell the people? Something has happened. Something has happened inside. God has spoken. He has had a vision and he can't speak now. So now the people are recognizing God is on the move. God is doing something because he hasn't spoken in 400 years and now he's beginning to reveal himself again. But there's more here than you may have realized. Which angel appeared to Zechariah? Well, the text tells us it was Gabriel. Gabriel. Now, think about this. Is it common for the names of angels to be given in scripture? No, not that often actually. We're, we're not given the names of angels usually. And can you guess the only two books that Gabriel is mentioned by name? Well, you should know one of them, Luke. <laughs> so we got 50%. The other is Daniel. Daniel's the only other person to mention Gabriel by name. But turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is in captivity in Babylon. He's a, a significant leader in Babylon. God gives him a number of visions about the future for Israel and their Messiah and the Gentile nations and even to the end of the world. <clears throat> but Daniel's having his quiet time. He's reading his Bible and praying uh, and he's probably reading Jeremiah, the prophet, and he is led to pray. Look at verse one of chapter nine. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, 
that's the scriptures, the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Verse three, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah and he he realizes that God prophesied that they would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And so he's like doing some calculations as he's studying his Bible uh, and going, wait, we're almost there. The seven years is almost up. So what does he do? Knowing that God has promised this, he prays and says, God, you said 70 years, make it happen. Fulfill your promise. This is a good lesson on prayer. This is one of the best chapters on prayer in the Bible as you read Daniel's prayer. And he basically prays that, God, you said it. I'm going to pray according to that. And so he prays according to the will of God. And then we jump down to verses 3 to um, 19 are his prayer. Then verse 20 says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before Yahweh my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So, Gabriel appears to Daniel in answer to his prayer at the evening sacrifice and gives him a message. What is the message he gives him? Well, he says, I have another 70 weeks for you or 70, 70 prophecy for you. So 70 years for you in captivity, you're praying about your people and uh, implications for the Messiah coming. Here's a prophecy that's going to give you hope for the Messiah. He gives him this 70 weeks prophecy, which is absolutely incredible. Daniel gets this prophecy from Gabriel and it predicts down to the very day that Jesus would walk into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. It's incredible. I mean, when you study this passage, it gives you chills. March 30, AD 33. From Nehemiah chapter two, the, the, uh, the, the, the decree that goes out from there down to the day Jesus walks in. I mean, you study that and you're like, this is incredible. That is the answer to his prayer. Now, there are many parallels between what happens in Daniel and what happens to Zechariah. Zechariah and Daniel both met Gabriel in the temple. Daniel was there praying at the evening sacrifice. Zechariah was likely offering incense at the evening sacrifice as well. The answer to Daniel's prayer was a prophecy that was going to send the Messiah. The answer to Zechariah's prayer was a promise that God was going to send the forerunner for the Messiah. And so it's almost like Gabriel comes out of retirement to give a message to Zechariah. He's in Daniel and then silence. And so when you see Gabriel on the scene again, you wait, wait a minute, Gabriel, where have we heard of him before? Daniel. What happened in Daniel? God gave a promise about the Messiah's coming. Now Gabriel's here again. He's like, all right, it's been 400 years. Here we are, you know. Uh, and, and, and he gives this message to Zechariah. Oh, but there's more. What do we say Luke's focus was in his gospel? It is Jesus as the son of man. Where does the concept of the son of man come from? 
the book of Daniel. Daniel's the one who establishes the theological baggage and meaning of the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets a vision. And what's amazing is it is a vision that connects the Messiah to Adam. In chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I looked in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. And he describes that beast as well. So you have four creatures, four beasts, and uh, you have a reference uh, to the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Now, where does all this terminology and themes come from? Well, this great sea, water stirring up the sea, uh, coming wind, uh, the winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. The same same word for spirit is the same word for wind. So this is imagery that goes back to the, the spirit hovering over the waters in creation in Genesis 1. And when else do we see creatures and one like a son of man? Well, Adam. Adam is, is, is created and he's surrounded by all these creatures that God makes. And so this imagery is intentional to talk about these world kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, in the language of animals. And then later in chapter 7, he introduces us to one like a son of man. And in verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is a new Adam, is the idea. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so we are getting here this understanding of what Daniel means by the Son of Man. We actually learn, sometimes we think, like, oh, Son of Man, it means his humanity. Actually, Son of Man is one of the most striking statements of the divinity of Jesus because the way Daniel describes him is one who is distinct from God and yet equal with God and will reign over the world. And so he is a new Adam and yet he's more than just a man. And so Luke's gonna get the concept of the Son of Man from Daniel. He's very influenced by Daniel. And so here we see it begins with the cousin of the Son of Man. And we see this fulfillment as this expectation from Daniel, especially with Gabriel coming on the scene and this language of the Son of Man. He's picking up that and bringing it forward for us and saying, God is working. It took time, but it's happening. God's promises never have expiration dates on them. He fulfills them. So this is the cousin of the Son of Man. Secondly, the conception of the Son of Man. The conception of the Son of Man. Verses 26 to 38. Verse 26 is in the sixth month of the, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We already looked that there needs to be a new Adam, a final Adam. But even in Genesis 3.15 in that promise, there is a hint, certainly not a full orb doctrine of the virgin conception, but a hint at this in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when you get to the word he, that's very out of the ordinary. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then a masculine singular appears, he. Now, at this point in Genesis, who is the only he? Right? There's only one he in existence, Adam. Adam is the only male at this point. So Moses is, is putting this in a way to say there's a new Adam. There's a new Adam who's gonna come. And he is going to do something that is going to defeat the serpent and yet it's gonna come through pain because his heel will be bruised. And he will be a substitute. But even here we see he's the seed of the woman. That's a strange way to talk. The seed of the woman. So then we get in Isaiah chapter seven uh, this picks up, and we looked at this some weeks ago, so I expect you to be very familiar with this. Uh, when we looked at Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so here's the promise that this virgin, this, this woman, will give birth, she will conceive, and it will be a son, it will be a male and Isaiah will tell us in chapter 9 that the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be a ruler. And so this seed of the woman is now being revealed to Mary that she will bear this one. Luke, in chapter 3, verse 38, in his genealogy of Jesus, ends by saying, by, with Adam, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam because he's not only the savior for Israel, but he's the savior for the whole world. We all need a new representative and that is the one who has come. But along with these connections to Adam, there's also a connection to David and the covenant with him. And, and we see here this promise to Mary that 
this God-man mediator will come who will redeem his people and he will reign. Those are the two concepts that we get built into what is said to Mary. It's a very humble context that this is given. It's in a nowhere place, Nazareth, to, to nobodies. Mary and Joseph, they, they, yes, they're in the line of David, but they're nobodies. And it's very gracious for God to choose Mary. She's not deserving in any way. And yet we see some of the, the results of this a divine conception, this virgin conception. And it is that he will be both God and man and thus a redeemer. And yet he will also be a ruler. He'll be the Davidic ruler. This, this phrase um, where, where it says that he will be the most high, uh, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, the son of the most high. This is a phrase that's often used in context in the Old Testament that have to do with the Messiah. Melchizedek uses it. He is the king priest who foreshadows Jesus. He's the king of Jerusalem and the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And he is a king and a priest at the same time. And he uses this phrase. It's also used of Balaam in his fourth prophecy where he predicts the coming of the Messiah and he speaks of God in these same terms as well in Numbers 24, 16. And that's the same prophecy where we get the star that will lead the, the wise men to where Jesus is. David uses the same terminology as well as the king of Israel. And so it has very messianic connotations to it. How would Mary have understood this announcement, though, related to David? Well, as we're going to see later, she understands her Bible. I mean, she really understands her Bible as a teenager. And she would have understood 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant the covenant to rule them all, as some have said. It's like, you know, Lord of the Rings, right? There's one ring to rule all the other rings. If you have this ring, you control all the others. It's, that's what it is with the Davidic covenant. If you fulfill the Davidic covenant, you have the power to fulfill all of the covenants. Bring all of them to pass. Abrahamic, uh, Mosaic, New Covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And so she is being told that this one who she will conceive is going to fulfill that covenant. And so, of course, she goes back in her mind to the Davidic covenant and God's purposes there. We already read in Daniel 7, verse 14, that this one, the son of man, he's given a kingdom and he's given dominion over the world. Daniel chapter two told about all these world kingdoms and there's another kingdom that's gonna come and it's gonna smash all those other kingdoms and, and be uh, an eternal kingdom that it's set up. But the way that she is given this prophecy is that first he's going to be a redeemer and then he will be a ruler. And so she asks a question about this. How, how is this supposed to happen? Hers is different than Zechariah's. Um, Zechariah's has doubt in it. Hers is more like, okay, so what am I supposed to do next? Is kind of the idea. Okay, I, I, she's gonna trust the Lord. She's submissive to the Lord, but okay, what do I do now? And there's this mystery that's given as it's explained. It's kind of veiled. It's supernatural. It says that, that there's this overshadowing language that will come. The Most High will overshadow you. This is a, going back to the picture of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters at creation. There's also a connection to Genesis 2 and the creation of Adam. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Same word for spirit and breath. So Luke is, once again, making another intentional connection to Adam and Jesus. If we remember that Luke is very influenced by Paul as well, Paul has this big theme about Adam and Jesus and the representatives. And so Luke is, is picking up on that a lot as well. And so here's this connection. And then what, what you gotta love is that 
there's this great encouragement from the angel, from the Lord, that would, would help Mary so much. I mean, you think, who would understand Mary's predicament? No one would be able to understand this and, and relate to her and be sympathetic with her, except Elizabeth, except Elizabeth. She would know exactly how Mary felt. And so he tells her about Elizabeth. And she's then given encouragement in the next section from Elizabeth as to the situation. She goes to her, but also she's given encouragement from God's ability where it says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And so then Mary is very submissive to this and she is a great model of trust in the word of God. (laughs) It's like, I like to say to people, if God tells you a what, you don't have to know how, you only have to trust who? <laughs> so if God tells you he's going to do something, you don't have to know how he's going to do it. You just only have to trust him. That's all you have to do. And so that's, she, she's reminded of the character of God and she trusts him. And so this is the conception of the son of man. And it's a fulfillment of Isaiah seven fourteen. We see also fulfillment in the celebration of the son of man. Celebration of the son of man in verses 39 to 56. First, we see uh, the celebration of Elizabeth in her speech, and then we see the song of Mary as she celebrates. We have kind of a joyful play date here. Uh, Oftentimes, you have moms get together for a play date for their kids to play. This is a play date for the moms to praise, for them to get together and praise God for what he is doing. And John gets a kick out of it as well. and uh, Elizabeth gets a kick out of it from John. (laughs) Uh, So look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Focus here is joy. This is all over the place. And there's this celebration of what God is doing. When God brings his plans to fulfillment, there is joy, there's excitement. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I start to see connections from the Old Testament to the New and just the specificity and the clarity of building these promises and seeing them come to pass, that itself gives me excitement and cause to celebrate. How much more seeing it in real time as they are celebrating? We see joy in Elizabeth, joy in John the Baptist, joy in Mary. And so first you see Elizabeth's speech and really we we could call this the causes of joy in the saints. There is joy in the communion of the saints. Mary's like, I gotta be with Elizabeth, someone who can understand this fellowship of believers. And so she goes because Elizabeth will know, Elizabeth will understand, they can have this deep fellowship together in that, in what God is doing. And sometimes that's the way for us as believers too, right? We we come together because we need this fellowship because we need to know we're not the crazy ones, right? We're, We're like, okay, we, we get it. We get the biblical worldview here and we're not the crazy ones. They're the crazy ones, right? And we love the crazy ones because we were a crazy one before and God saved us and brought us to knowledge of truth and is continuing to conform our minds to the truth. So 
clarification. Uh, but the point is, she wants to be there. She wants to be with another believer who can understand and sympathize and go, yes, this is the truth. This is the truth. And be built up in that. And so that's one of the causes of her joy. Another is the confession that the saints make. Did you notice Elizabeth says about the baby in Mary's womb that he is the Lord? She calls this baby Lord. Jesus is Lord. And it's only by the Holy Spirit that we ever come to that realization and conclusion. And she, it says that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does she say? Jesus is Lord. The baby is Lord. And that's what Paul says, that only by the Holy Spirit can we say Jesus is Lord. And then we see the, the joy of confidence in the saints where she commends Mary for trusting the Lord, for believing that there would be this fulfillment spoken to her by the Lord. His faith, there's joy in that. J.C. Rowell said this, better a thousand times to be rich in faith than rich in gold. Gold will be worthless in the unseen world to which we are all traveling. Faith will be owned in that world before God the Father and the holy angels. When the great white throne is set and the books are opened, when the dead are called from their graves and receiving their final sentence, the value of faith will at length be fully known. Men will learn then, if they never learned before, how true are the words, blessed are they that believed. And so here's the, the joy of the saints in the confidence they have in God. Then we see Mary's song. Mary's song has the celebration of joy by the saints. And she begins to celebrate what God is doing. This is called the Magnificat. The Magnificat. Mary's Magnificat, it's in Latin, it means magnifies. She's magnifying God. She's celebrating God for who he is and what he's done. It's really a model for our worship. Notice the focus of her worship. It's upon the Lord and God, her Savior. Verse 46 says, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then she begins to show what the fuel of her worship is, the reasons why she magnifies God. For, verse 48, now she's gonna give reasons. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done a great, great things for me, and holy is his name. She praises God for the privileges that God gives. She's gonna bear the Son of God, the Savior. She also praises God for the pattern that God often follows. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary speaks in a way that it's like, sounds like in the past, but she's speaking about the future. She's saying, this is so certain, I'm gonna speak about it as if it's already done. Like Paul says, you are glorified. Well, you're not yet glorified, but it's so certain that he speaks about it as if it's already happened. She's saying, this is what the Messiah is gonna do. And what you gotta love about this is she is so scripture saturated. I mean, she is just bleeding the Bible in her prayer. She has filled her heart with the scriptures and so she's very aware what God's promises entail. And so she begins to just praise God for those things as she sees his promises coming to fulfillment. God is gonna keep his promises in verses 54 and 55. She says he has humbled, or she has helped his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. 
So she looks to the Abrahamic covenant and she sees God is gonna fulfill what he said to Abraham and he's gonna do it through this child who's coming. And there's just such excitement over the fulfillment of God's plans and his promises. His past fulfillment gives us even assurance and celebration of what he's promised yet to come in the future. And then it says in verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. As they just continue to celebrate what God is doing. This is the celebration of the Son of Man. And we see the conquering of the Son of Man. The conquering of the Son of Man. And here we see the birth of a Baptist and then the blessing of uh, Zechariah. You see the birth of John the Baptist in verses 57 to 66. And just to summarize that, what you have is the... (laughs) He's born, and the neighbors are like, hey, we should name him Zach, like his dad, Zechariah, right? And, uh, but he's like, no, his name will be John. And likely, Elizabeth has been made aware of this. And he still can't speak, and maybe he couldn't even hear either, until he writes on this tablet, and he, he says his name is John. Not his name will be John, his name is John. Because now he's gotten it. He's realized what God has taught him through this trial. And he's trust God now. He trusts God's plan. And so now he names him John. And he now is able to speak. And so what does he speak? Well, he speaks the blessing he wasn't able to give when he walked out from the, mo- the holy place. That, that benediction he hoped to give. But this is a great benediction. And what is it about? Well, it is about what Messiah will do. The expectation of what Messiah would come to do. He would conquer his enemies. He would conquer He would conquer the physical enemies of Israel, but he would also conquer the great enemy of sin and death and bringing forgiveness of sins. Now, it was less clear that Messiah would have two comings when he would come first to redeem and then second, he would come again to reign. But Zechariah just packs it all in into one. Let me read the text for us. It's just filled with scripture allusions and quotes all over. It says in verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sun sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He praises God in these very powerful ways. And really what we see is Zechariah is pulling together Promises from the Abrahamic covenant in verses 73 to 75, the Davidic in verse 69, and then the implications of the new covenant in verses 77 to 79. This is what the Messiah will do. And his son, Zechariah's son, John, will be the forerunner to prepare the way for this one. Let me just pick out two images uh, just as a selection for you of what he, he, he says here. In verse 69, he says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. You say, why a horn of salvation? 
Well, remember Daniel? Daniel spoke of horns, and these horns represented leaders, kings. And one of them, a little horn, was going to be a final world ruler. We call him the Antichrist. There's another precursor to him in Daniel 8 of another horn, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who's already come and gone. And so this idea of a horn is one who is a ruler. And so he's saying, God has raised up for us a horn. He's raised up for us the ultimate horn, the, the true ruler of humanity. That's what he's going to do. Once again, another allusion back. There's so much fulfillment language all over this narrative. And then consider another picture he uses in verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This, this word sunrise, it means that which springs up. And it's, <clears throat> commentators struggle because there's two possible ways to take this. One is this idea that this word sunrise is actually related to the same word for branch. And that's actually a messianic title for the Messiah, the branch, the one who will spring up, the root of Jesse. Uh, but it also can have this idea of uh, the, st the sun or a star rising up, which is also a messianic context, in messianic context. And so Luke might be intending to elicit both images in what he's saying here. In Zechariah, the branch is both king and priest. And so these two really come together. Not only that, but in Isaiah, we learn this about the light that comes when the Messiah comes in chapter 9, beginning of chapter 9. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. The idea was those that were the first of the nation of, the nation of Israel to be taken into captivity will be the first to receive the light of the Messiah when he comes. He will come and bring this light just because I can't resist. Numbers chapter 24 is a great text because I, I know some of you are going to get into Numbers soon. And you're like, why should I read Numbers? You know, it's just, this is like the math book of the Old Testament. <laughs> I don't like math. You know, but you got to read at least to 24, 23 and 24, the prophecies of Messiah from, from Balaam. And here's the last one. And here's what he says in 2417. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and shall break down all the sons of Sheth. Crushing the head, that sounds like Genesis 3.15. Here's a star that's coming forward and Zechariah is pulling on all of that and more to show us this expectation of the Messiah that he will conquer enemies, he will conquer the greatest enemies, sin and death, and he will bring forgiveness of sins and peace with God. This is what this Messiah has come to do, to bring peace. First peace between God and men, and then peace on the earth as well. And this leads us finally to the fulfillment in the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man, in verses 1 to 20 of chapter 2. And, and what, what we see is really God's sovereign circumstances of his birth in verses 1 to 7. Let's read those. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there's no place for them in probably better the guest room instead of the inn. Caesar Augustus is this massive figure, just like Herod was when he began in chapter one, verse five. Luke just uses these guys as placeholders. I mean, these are like the most significant people in the ancient world at this time. And he's like, oh yeah, just so you know where we're at, here's this, here's this guy. But let's get to the main story. Here's the main characters. These nobody people uh, from Nazareth. And, and so he begins to focus upon them. It just shows, you know, God is working through a human leader at the time to bring about circumstances that would move the whole world at this time so that they would be registered and bring them to specific places in his providence to accomplish exactly what he wanted so that this child would be born in Bethlehem because David was born in Bethlehem and David is given the Abrahamic, uh, given the Davidic covenant and David is the one who will fulfill that, the descendant of David. And so this one is going to replay all of the uh, key features of David's life. He'll be born in the same town as David. He'll have some of the same experiences as David to show he's restarting the Davidic line. And so he's born in Bethlehem. He's of the, his family's of the house and lineage of David. And so they go. And, and we just see all these circumstances happening to make this come to pass. God is moving the empire to accomplish his will. Once again, because we love Daniel so much, we learn in the beginning of Daniel, in Daniel 1, 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Wicked king did it. Verse two, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels. God did it. Both are working. Who's doing this? Who brought this decree? Well, Caesar Augustus. But God brought it to get Mary and Joseph exactly where he wanted them, fulfilling his plan exactly like he wanted it. So these are the sovereign circumstances of his birth. We also see the surprising supernatural announcement of his birth. If you are going to announce this incredible figure in world history, you would be like, okay, call CNN, call MSNBC, call Fox, call you know, Daily Wire, whatever, whoever you like to listen to, and, and say, we gotta get this on every major network because this is huge. Is that what happens? No, no. Shepherds. Shepherds were just kind of like insignificant people, and that's where it comes to Verse eight, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field watching, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths no, that's not a sign. That's like every baby, right? But this is the sign. And lying in a manger. What? Lying in a feeding trough? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He gives this announcement to the shepherds, most insignificant 
Yet they are told. The news is of a savior, a deliverer. Think of the book of Judges. This is the ultimate deliverer. He's born this day. He's the anointed king, the descendant of David. And yet there's this shamefulness in his birth, his being born in a, in a manger. And he's in the guest room because of the reproach upon the family of Joseph because of the virgin conception. And then there's this incredible song. I mean, just the fear of these angels. I can't even imagine the, this, this. I mean, well, a friend of mine once said, you know, I think when angels learn a new language, the first saying they have to learn is fear not, right? Because they're so terrifying. <laughs> okay, just whenever you see someone, just say fear not because they're gonna be terrified, right? But what's worse than one angel is thousands upon thousands of angels and they start singing. And this is incredible. And so this is the surprising and supernatural announcement of this birth because why is it so significant? It is fulfilling all of these prophecies. And then finally, we see the savoring celebration of his birth in the final verses. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in, the, in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. These shepherds, go back, they start telling people. And it's interesting, there is this word, child, that's used. It's very similar to the word. It's like the same root as the word for servant in Isaiah. The servant of the Lord, we studied about him in Isaiah 53. And there's this kind of like duck, duck, goose thing. It's like duck, 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 goose, right? And you notice the, the one that's abnormal. Well, in the text, in verse 12, it says baby. Verse 16, baby. And then you get to 17, child. It kind of throws it off. It's like baby, baby, child. And so here is this idea of their expectation, what they may have understood as well about who this one was, who this baby was that had been revealed to them. He is the servant. He is the one who is going to come to deliver his people. And so there's this incredible astonishment and wonder at this one. And then Mary, and you, you have to think, most likely Luke sat down and talked to Mary because he knows she treasured up these things in her heart. And so he gets probably a lot of this narrative from Mary. We're not dogmatic about that, but we, it's likely that he's doing these interviews and sits down with her and she, he receives this information as she's worshiping over these things, celebrating this birth and what God is accomplishing in, in all this. And so on the one hand, we have wonder and amazement at his birth. On the other hand, we have treasuring and praising at his birth. And, and th those are kind of two responses that we can have to the whole Christmas story. You can just be in wonder of this. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's, you know, but wonder is not saving faith, right? You can just be amazed at this. But the, the issue is, do you have what Mary had in the sense of this treasuring and praising at his birth that you realize not only this is incredible, these connections, but you see the why, the so what of this. Not just the what, but the so what. And you realize this one is the one I need. 
This one is the new Adam, the final Adam, the one who can stand in my place, the one who is righteous, the one who is going to rule over the nations, but he's going to redeem his people first. The only hope humanity has to restore relationships with one another, relationships with God and the whole cosmos. Is your Jesus too small to only redeem individuals? Jesus is going to redeem individuals and redeem and restore the entire cosmos. And this is what's starting to happen. This is the culmination of God's plans. And it begins with the birth of the forerunner who will then proclaim and prepare the way for the Messiah. He is going to come. He, it, it, he is coming and then he comes and he stands on the earth and he proclaims repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he is the very basis for that forgiveness that can happen. Next time, we will see this little baby, Jesus, presented at the temple. And we will see the preparation for his public ministry, even from a young age. Let's celebrate together the glory of Christmas in January and the glory of our Messiah and King, the Son of Man who rules over all, who is our only hope, both in life and in death. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this grand story that you have weaved together, the detail here, the the precision, the synergism of these different writers as they picked up, as they were expectant, excited. Lord, this gives us great hope. This gives us great confidence. Whatever we are facing, we realize that we are in a small part of history that fits into your grand plan that you are working out. It gives us hope that this world is moving somewhere with great purpose and great certainty. And we get to be a part of that plan. The story's not about us. It's about you, it's about your glory, and we are so thankful to be a part of it, to know this story, and to know the story in such a way that it is for us. It is for our benefit, for our good, and for your glory. Satisfy us, Lord, again in a fresh way with the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, let's respond in song now.